Hey, my name is Jeffrey Rickman. I'm a local licensed pastor in the United Methodist Church, and this is a channel I started started called Plain Spoken, where um, I'm a conservative and I'm trying to think through pressing issues in the United Methodist Church from a conservative perspective. I don't think I'm the best person for this, but um, I, I am a person who's willing to, to talk through some of these issues from a conservative perspective, and the, the intention here is not to... Uh, make things worse or build tensions, but lead to understanding. Uh, my, my hope is that conservatives can watch this and feel like I'm articulating what we believe and how we feel in a way that's helpful so that you yourself can adopt some of this or play with your own language uh, for how to explain uh, to, to centrists and liberals how it is that you uh, understand your faith. My hope also is that liberals watch this to, to gain a, a, a more gracious understanding of conservatives than is often available. So um, this is a, a weekly news segment that I do where I cover five or six topics. I try and do it under 30 minutes. I rarely succeed. Um, but uh, I also do interviews from time to time, and I, I cover um, what's going on in individual annual conferences. So um, uh, if you want to stay on my radar, like my, my channel on Facebook or follow me on YouTube, uh, I meant to reverse that. But um, if you want to follow along, I'm going to be releasing an analysis of Bishop Bickerton's State of the Church Address and um, how it is, uh, to my mind, indicative of, of the notion that he doesn't really understand or care to understand conservatives. Um, I'm also going to be releasing a report soon on the Great Plains Annual Conference and what's going on there, so make sure to stay tuned. The first uh, topic I wanted to cover today, I'm always going to have an article or, or something that's a, a touchstone for it, but this follows up on reporting on Arkansas Annual Conference that I did a month and a half ago, my most watched video, uh, about 20,000 views on YouTube, so I guess there's a lot of interest in Arkansas. Uh, you'll remember that at their last annual conference under Bishop Mueller, they um, refused to let three churches disaffiliate, Jonesboro, Searcy, and Cabot. Um, this article is about Fayetteville, um, United Meth well, it's not, it's Central United Methodist Church in Fayetteville. This is written by the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. A guy named Frank Lockwood wrote this on the 7th of this month. Um, so I, uh, I've got the, I'll always have the link to the article in the show notes so you can pull it up on your own. Um, but this addresses Central United Methodist Church. And what seems to have happened is Central United Methodist Church negotiated with a conservative contingency in their church to bless them and allow them to go and start two new churches. So one of them is Genesis Church, which is in South Fayetteville. It's a satellite campus of the Central Church. They're just giving it to them. And then there's also going to be a third congregation that they're calling Christ Church. And um, that's their current leadership of the church is going to be at the helm. Um, which is interesting because it's going to be much smaller. So the Central Church has agreed to pay half a million dollars of seed money to these startup churches that uh, has a payment schedule there. And then they're being very gracious in the terms of exit. <laughs> they sold um, the campus for Genesis Church for $1 to the new congregation, if you can imagine that. So... Um, here's a quote, by finding a con compromise, this is a, a quote from the DS, I believe, by finding a compromise, central members avoided the need for a lengthy discernment process and a divisive congregation-wide vote on whether to disaffiliate. So under the agreement, disaffiliation efforts have been dropped. 
Um, so then you have a, a series of uh, comments, and then you have some of the stats that I find interesting. So the central UMC's average attendance was 1,886. It's one of the nation's 100 largest United Methodist congregations. Um, so those going to the Genesis Church are just 300 to 350 of them, and then just 200 of them are going to be uh, involved in the new non-denominational church. And I might not have read this closely enough. Maybe the Genesis Church is going to be affiliated with the GMC. I really don't know. But I, it, it doesn't talk about why it is that the, con the conservatives wanted to split off into two congregations, what the issue is that would keep them from being just one congregation. Um, so um, the two new congregations, yeah, it says are both conservative and then it, it talks about, um, in Arkansas in particular, 35 of 38 agreements have already been ratified in Arkansas to disaffiliate more than 2,000 nationwide. I have not heard how many are uh, currently in the process to disaffiliate at this next annual conference in Arkansas. Um, so it, this largely would be seen as a very encouraging article where you didn't have a divisive vote and the, the stay UMC versus the WCA folks um, everybody seems to have been very gracious in this and to bless each other and, and provide, um, well, the, to give a new building for $1 is quite a thing, but then to give half a million dollars to uh, roughly just a, a quarter, uh, a fifth of the regular worshiping population, it does seem very gracious. But as I read over it, I started going, there aren't many congregations where this could be replicated. It'd have to be of a certain size. It'd have to have a certain amount of money. Um, if it's majority conservative, then uh, I could imagine them letting a, a liberal uh, contingency leave, but that's not really a, a conversation. You know, that, that would have been ideal for Jonesboro. You know, it seems clear to me that Jonesboro uh, liberals were in a minority. It would have been great if Jonesboro could have cut them a check, figured out a building for them, and had an amicable separation that way. But whenever people are, are uh, feeling in, well, you know, it just gets complicated when people have fond memories in a building, when they have paid these funds that have made the building of it possible, when they've worshipped in these pews that they sat in with, with people that have died, you know, we all feel equally entitled to carry on that legacy and that heritage. So I'm, I'm pretty pessimistic. I would love it if this could be replicated um, across the UMC. I think this, this wonderfully sidesteps provisions of paragraph 2553 that are cumbersome. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about it later whenever we uh, come to another article, but it's important to remember that whenever paragraph 2553 was proposed, the authors had no idea the implications of um, paying unfunded pension liabilities and how Westpath would calculate that number. Um, so... Um, I don't know. I, I, I think the temptation in reading this is to get encouraged about what's possible. I think it's only possible in a, a small number of cases, so I, I just didn't see much reason to be personally optimistic about that. The uh, second topic I wanted to discuss was the Connectional Table and the Standing Committee for Central Conference Matters, the SCCCM. I've been trying to do some re research on them. It's been kind of opaque, um, but their secretary, Deanna Stickley Minor, has been uh, very kind to me as I've emailed her and tried to find information. This article is primarily focusing on the connectional table, which met 
at the same time as the Standing Committee on Central Conference Matters, um, but at a different location. The SCCCM was in Germany. I didn't even pay attention to uh, where <coughs> it said they met. Um, here we have the members of the Connectional Table lay hands on Bishop uh, Mande Muyombo, who's right there, Chair of the Connectional Table, and Judy Keniston, Interim Chief Connectional Ministries Officer during the group's meeting in February 24th in Atlanta. Okay, so they're putting, laying hands on them. Uh, the leadership body helps determine the budget of the United Methodist Church. Now that, that, that line right there, I think is not exactly true. Um, because of a quote later on down the article, but a, a big part of this article is talking about uh, budget projections. The connectional table is wanting to play a role in um, whether or not the denomination adopts the General Commission on Finance, General General Committee GCFA, General Committee on Finance and Administration. They said there needs to be a twenty five reduction, twenty five percent reduction in the budget over the next few years. And what they ended up doing is rejecting the GCFA uh, proposal, and they want to um, approve an 18% cut to the base percentage. Now, that's still going to hurt quite a bit, but not nearly as much as a 25% cut that the GCFA recommended. So um, it, it goes over broadly what they accomplished at this meeting and what they're about. Um, talked about the financial angle, and then it also talked about the Christmas Covenant. Now, the Christmas Covenant was supposedly written by people overseas. If you ever go to the website, which I've done on this show, it doesn't name the authors at all. Um, I can kind of guess who on the African continent is tied to it at this point. I don't know how directly they authored it, um, but the Connectional Table had its own agreement that it talks about, and then um, the SCCCM and the Connectional Table uh, came together over Zoom and both decided to adopt a plan for regionalization in some capacity. So here's Bishop Monday, and he is the chair of the connectional table. Something to know about Monday is he is uh, one of the few African bishops who's been outspokenly liberal. He he has a liberal sexual ethic. Um, he he serves over the Katanga Episcopal area. He also does not live in Africa. He lives in the United States of America. I don't know how he does his job living in the U.S. and being responsible for a huge area in uh, Africa, but he, he does it, he's paid for it, and he's leading in this capacity as well. So it talks about the overlap uh, between uh, the connectional table and the SCCCM in here. Something else to know about the connectional table. I, I wrote a couple people, somebody needs to write an article, and I don't want it to be me, the connectional table, I've been uh, in pastoral ministry for almost 12 years. I've noted at general conference every year they bring proposals that get shot down, that, that do not represent the interests of the general church. They're always trying to swing the general church to the left to one degree or another. And so once again, I mean, this, this is fitting in with that pattern. The regionalization pattern or uh, proposal, as seen by the Christmas covenant, insulates America from being corrected by uh, persons of color, non-Americans abroad. It makes it so that Americans can liberalize our sexual ethics and there's nothing they can do about it. So it's trying to effectively remove their voices from accountability in our context. And that's what the connectional table is now throwing their weight behind. Um, 
you'll recall the, well, maybe you don't know, the jurisdictional system in the United States was established in order to isolate black people from white jurisdictions. You had the Central Conference, which was all, all black Americans. And we look at that rightfully and say that was racist. But what we're doing is re-perpetuating that in the Christmas co covenant where we are creating regions and constituencies that are not accountable to one another. All right, so um, it, it talked about some stats where um, expenditures by local churches are declining fast in the United States congregations as they shrink and churches leave the denomination. Now, I'm not sure how they do this arithmetic, but apparently they are projecting the budget for general boards and agencies based on the expenses of local churches. Now, I kind of thought that they were going to just keep the numbers the same or put them wherever they want and then just put a higher burden on every local church. But there comes a point where local churches stop paying the higher numbers, so they're, they're trying to balance the needs of the general church, this large bureaucracy that some people have called bloated, I would call it bloated, um, multi-million dollar agencies with millions of dollars in reserves. Um, we we want to continue sending money to them, but the thing is when local churches are being bled dry, then they can't send that money. So um, trends show that church expenditures will decline 13.2% this year and 18.7% the next year and 21% in 2025. So that's that's a big deal. They also talked about how many congregations have uh, left or been closed since uh, uh, 2013. I did that math. It was 5,592 churches, and that was before the bulk of the uh, uh, disaffiliations were processed, I believe. So I did not watch this video on here. Um, you had a quote from Brian Mills. I just thought this was interesting. He says, I don't believe the GCFA can give another entity, the connectional table or anyone else, decision-making authority on the apportionment formula, said Brian Mills. Uh, he said doing so would be inconsistent with the denomination's book of discipline. So it's it's weird. The connectional table, it seems to me, is is interloping and trying to to play a role in the budget that gets adopted when that is firmly within G, GCFA's um, uh, wheelhouse. Now, even if the connectional table is successful and the lower 18% is adopted, you're still looking at a 40% budget cut across uh, GBGM, the Global Ministries, uh, Higher Education, Central Conference Theological Fund, uh, Church and Society, man, I would love that, uh, Discipleship Ministries, and Communications. All of them would suffer a 40% budget cut. Some of the other groups wouldn't suffer as much. Um, one guy on uh, the general board said, we're willing to consider giving up more if we have to because we're team players, but you better believe they are going to fight, fight, fight to keep their money because that's the Methodist way. We like our money. And then uh, at the end, in case people have become too detached from the local church context, about 2.04 cents of every dollar in United Methodist Church offering plate goes to denomination-wide ministries. The 25% budget cut, that's what the GCFA uh, is asking for, would lower that amount to 1.8 cents. We don't have the number for if we did the 18% that Connectional Table recommended. Um, the last bit is on uh, regionalization, so um, I've already talked about that. So let's move on. All right, the next uh, topic, I thought it would be interesting to engage uh, this guy. This is Bill Brownson. He's a general conference lay delegate. 
from West Ohio annual conference, and I don't know if he would self-identify as a liberal or a centrist. I just know he is not very uh, sympathetic with conservatives like me, and he uh, he has a, a pretty brief article in which he um, talks about frustrations with people like me, things that people like me say, and what he thinks is wrong with it. So um, right at the get-go, he makes, you know, he says some things that I would really agree with, like it, we need to be talking to one another, we need to do it in a respectful and mature and an adult way. He just doesn't think conservative voices are, are doing that. Um, he says that it is a well-framed partisan political argument asserting that the other party lacks all manner of good character and common sense. That's what he's seen conservatives doing. The claims were polarizing and one-sided and mirrored in the worst forms, although tried and true, of current political debates. Um, he, so he doesn't think, I don't know if he thinks that any liberals or centrists do this, but he's definitely um, blaming conservatives for this. So I, I, one comment that I made that I, I wanted to remember is, is it beyond the possibility in any group conflict that one party really has lost its character or common sense? Um, as I look at the situation, I really do think that centrists and liberals have forgotten very important Christian principles, namely that of non-coercion. Um, I, I think that many of them will look back on this point and deeply regret their, their loss of character in this moment. But if, if that is off limits from a conversation, if you cannot call one's uh, opponent one of their their uh, their common sense or their character into question, then a lot of conversations just don't happen because a lot of the conflict is around questions of character and, and common sense. Um, so what what he does, he he agrees that we need to be having a res respectful conversation, but then he says that what we're doing in the denomination is not based on the Bible; it's based on partisan politics that we see. So already on the front end, he is treating conservative arguments ingenuinely. He's saying they're not, they're not being genuine. They're just following a partisan playbook. They're just following a, a formula that works, um, which I think is a really problematic way to even begin this conversation. And yeah, 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 I've had people tell me I use the word problematic too much. I just don't have a better word for it. I don't want to say evil or uh, wrong I just think it's it's a problem when you say, "Hey, th they're only saying this because that's that's what their side says. They're they're partisan. They don't mean that." I, I think it's really important when you disagree with somebody to just go ahead and believe that they mean what they say, and and take it for face value, and then address what they're saying on the merits of what they're saying, which is what he tries to do at the the larger at the the back end of this. So he he says there's a formula that conservatives follow. Um, it, it's the continuing UMC and its leaders that are not upholding the book of discipline. Yes, that's an argument that I would make, and I don't see what's wrong with it. Uh, therefore, churches have that have a correct uh, understanding of the Scripture should be able to depart the denomination that sponsored and supported them with the lowest of hurdles. I, I would agree with that, except saying the hurdles really are quite high. I just practice the golden rule and look at some poor rural churches and ask yourself if you think that's a low hurdle. Um, the rules that annual conferences have put in place for disaffiliations are onerous and unfair, uh, even though 
The framework for the rules was endorsed by supporters, and I already addressed that. They didn't understand the financial implications of the um, uh, unfunded pension liabilities. Uh, conferences, again, read bishops are insufficiently pastoral to congregations and individuals choosing to leave. Yes, I would say that, and I'm going to say it whenever I review Bickerton's State of the Church address. Uh, I, I think there's clear evidence that they uh, generally lack a lot of compassion and empathy for uh, people they disagree with. And bottom line, bishops are corrupt, and their conference trustees and other leaders cannot be trusted. I don't think it's helpful to make accusations of corruption, but I do think it's helpful to say we're in the midst of a conflict right now, and we cannot and should not lean on trust. We should have transparency uh, so that we don't have to trust one another. So staying on message is a hallmark of a well-run political campaign and, campaign and often means ascribing motives and lack of character to your opponents. That's true. I generally agree that that's unhelpful. Make no mistake, numerous highly vocal proponents of disaffiliation are following a secular political campaign playbook. He doesn't have any names associated with that. I don't find it a helpful comment. It's not rooted in Scripture. I, I underline that because, you know, Jesus, he called his opponents vipers. He called them children of the evil one. Uh, Paul called a guy a whitewashed tomb. You know, when, when you're looking at name-calling, when you're looking at questioning people's character and motives, that's all throughout the Bible. The, the prophets do it. I mean, I, I don't see how he says it's not rooted in Scripture. It is increasingly devoid of basic respect and fair play. I think he chooses the fair play thing directly to, to argue with Tom Lambrecht. I, I, if you didn't see it, last week I covered his article where he talks about how the institution is really not playing fair um, for a number of reasons, which he articulates. I, I think, yes, the, the, the rhetoric has gotten more devoid of basic respect and fair play. I think it's mostly happened on the institution and liberal side. Um, I, I would love to see examples to the opposite. Please send them to me. There is honor and credibility in making the case for fundamental disagreements, but those are sac sacrificed when ends justify means. Now, I, I think the inference here is that conservatives are unscrupulous and the ends justify the means for us, and I just think that case, if you're going to make it, has to have names and specifics attached to it. I think, I think that's just an unfair thing to just— and I understand he needs it to be a short article— but if you can't make the case well or point to someone else who has, I just don't think it's a good thing to make it. Um, let's, let's talk about the specific things that, that he sees conservatives being concerned about and his answer to it. So what's a political playbook some proponents of disaffiliation are advancing? An effective first component is to instill fear. So one of the claims of misinformation is conservatives are fear-mongering, you know, and the inference there is, is um, that our fears are not worthy you know, that, that we shouldn't really be afraid. So there's a kind of gaslighting that happens. And I don't want to say that that's always wrong. Some people are sometimes afraid of things they should not be afraid of, you know. Uh, when my kids are afraid in the middle of the night, I comfort them and I tell them that their fears are not warranted. But the problem here is the specific things he points to, I think, are things that conservatives should be uh, worried about, uh, concerned about. The most common fear is that a gay or lesbian person will be appointed as their pastor, but the likelihood an LGBTQ pastor will be appointed to a church that doesn't want one is zero. I don't know how he has this confidence. Uh, we already have a history in our denomination of, of forcing female clergy on churches who don't want them, forcing multicultural clergy on churches that don't think it would be beneficial. 
And the argument is not whether or not those congregations were right to not want them. The argument is, will the conference honor the wishes of the local church? And I think we have a precedent of, in many cases, the answer being no. So why would it be any different with gay clergy? You know, conservatives understand that sex and race are, are, are inalienable characteristics blessed by God, but we disagree with liberals on whether or not sexual orientation is. Um, and so when the left sees these things all belonging together, why would they honor conservatives seeing sexual orientation and sexual identity differently? I, I, I don't know how he can be so confident. I'm not confident. Where does this confidence come from? What does he know that I don't know? The next fear that's cultivated is that a church will have to host gay weddings. Again, the chances of this occurring against the will of the church or their appointed pastor are slim. Once again, he speaks with absolute certainty. Why is he certain? I do not understand where this certainty comes from. If we pass rules in the book of discipline that make it uh, wrong and immoral to practice discrimination in this sense, then this seems like something that pastors and churches could be reprimanded and punished for if they refuse to let gay people get married in their sanctuaries. A third fear is that if we don't act now, we'll be forced to stay or forfeit our money and property. There has long been and will continue to be a path to disaffiliation when the vast majority of a church's members have an abiding desire to leave the con connection. Once again, he is so confident in this. I don't know where this confidence comes from. 2548.2 did exist for a long time, but the Ju Judicial Council blocked it out, made it null and void, saying that 2553 is the only provision now. It's going to expire at the end of the year. It's not clear to me that in General Conference 2024, they're going to adopt another exit disaffiliation strategy for local churches. Taylor Watson Burton Edwards talked about that in the Using Our Brains article that I talked about last week. But just because he's talking about it does not mean it's going to happen. I think it's very indicative. They're fighting 2553 disaffiliation so hard right now. Why would they be more open to disaffiliation in the future? That makes no sense to me. A common tactic of secular political campaigns is to extrapolate the views of a few as though they are the views of many. Some churches in my conference have received imagery and quotes, often out of context, about bishops many states away or some who retired years ago when a pastor traveled to a neighboring United Methodist congregation to advocate for disaffiliation, was, just about, was asked about the credibility of materials he was touting. He just shrugged his shoulders. And once again, there's no name attached here. It would be so easy to manufacture uh, something like this. But the larger concern here is, are conservatives wrong to look at the extremes of the left and then impute that on the whole? And what they would say is, hey, most of us aren't like that. And conservatives know that. The problem is we know that liberals and centrists generally are not bothered by it, which means that it's going to be a, a place where this ideology continues to grow and fester. When you look at American culture as a whole, it has swung far left from where it was just 50 years ago There, in a number of ways. Our denomination has likewise tried to swing very far left, and that happens with a few people and then more people and then a lot of people. Conservatives are concerned about that, and we're concerned that, that uh, centrists and seemingly reasonable liberals are not concerned about the extremes that are making a home in the United Methodist Church. And when there is no correction on those extremes, then we impute a, an indifference to fair play, orthodoxy, um, a, a shared goal together. And I think we're right to do so. Another secular political trip is asserting that if those in power don't speak out about everything they disagree with, that means that they agree with whatever claims to be 
true or just. I think this is a disingenuous argument. You know, I, I think bishops are obligated to speak against the, the, the issues of our day that are uh, dividing us and have clear biblical precedent. So I don't think it's, it's a real thing to expect bishops to speak on everything under the sun, but they should be speaking on the main issues, and that's a problem when they don't. It's a problem when they are not exercising discipline within the conferences over which they've been entrusted or the Episcopal areas. Um, when someone says the terms of disaffiliation of an annual conference are unjust, isn't it ironic that those rules are published and known while the materials of, uh, and training sessions of those advocating disaffiliation are not? I just thought that was a weird point to make. Um, some annual conferences have not made their disaffiliation programs uh, known. I talked about West Virginia. Uh, and I'm not aware of the WCA or GMC keeping any of their material secret. I, I, I've seen those widely circulated, so I don't know where this is coming from. Um, he talks about more stuff, but I've already spent more time on this. Um, the author of this, hey, man, uh, you, you seem like a nice guy. I like the way you write. Bill Brownston, if you want to talk, you're very welcome to call me. We can have a, a conversation back. And I do think we need to have conversations, and if you think you could be uh, reasonable with me. Let's do it, man, because I, I think I think we have to be doing this. Um, but we, we need to move on. The next one is Methodist Gaps. This is an article written by Riley B. Case. He used to write for the Confessing Movement, which is, is no more. He's been doing these segments on juicy ecumenism that um, talk about uh, American Methodist history, and it's really interesting to me. I, I've really appreciated his, his insight. Um, I tried to friend him on Facebook, and he won't receive me as a friend. I don't know why, but you should, you and me should be friends, buddy. Um, he wrote this article talking about, um, well, it's called Methodist Gaps. He's talking about French uh, mediating elite. So one of the things that if you read Methodist history in America and in Great Britain, you realize that classism um, has played a big role in our denomination. If you've ever heard that word mainline churches, mainline denominations, uh, I'm pretty sure that came from uh, Chicago. It was, a, it was a northern city. The mainline was the place where the upper middle class people lived. So the mainline churches were churches that capitalized on upper middle class values um, and, and, and uh, way of life. And so that's why, it's one of the reasons why the United Methodist Church is overwhelmingly white. You know, we just really capitalized on a certain class uh, or a sense of um, uh, bourgeoisie values um, in the church for a long time. So even though we have a lot of compassionate talk of poor people, it's very it's luxury beliefs. It's it's high class values that that we promote at the highest levels and then try and um, cajole the rest of the denomination into. So what he, what he shows is that he goes through the history of uh, the fringe groups in America. Methodists started off as fringe groups along with Mormons, the Christian Union people, Baptists, others. And then the establishment groups, um, does he name any of them? No, it'd be like the Anglicans, um, uh, uh, Episcopalians. Um, so they, they already were hostile you know, in early colonial America, you would often have the Methodist preacher, circuit rider show up into town and have a public argument with the Episcopalian priest. And so um, the fringe folks like Methodists might refer to the established folk, establishment folk as mediating elite. These are the people that are the cultured despisers. They, they see people like me 
and most conservatives, especially those that don't have a seminary degree, as uh, well, they were called um, characterized as uncivilized, uh, and the group could even talk about the first group as barbarians. Um, so um, I put a star by this paragraph because it really highlights where we came from. From the first group, Methodism, as it grew spectacularly, matured and rose up in respectability, and it started colleges and seminaries and began directing Methodist zeal for greater good. Methodist post-millenarianism morphed into views not only of social reform, but of utopianism and bringing the kingdom of God to earth. The 20th century was labeled, for example, in the title of the best-known journal of today as the Christian Century. A new theology, modernism, discarded pre-scientific supernaturalism for a more scientific understanding. This led to an elite class of educators, church bureaucrats and leaders who believed modernism was the wave of the future and that fundamentalism was a dying relic of the past. So that's something that took place over the course of the 20th century, and Methodism went from this, this rebel-rousing working-class movement to a higher-class uh, elite movement led by um, elites and experts at the top. That fits in with the progressivist vision of the early 20th century. That fits in with modernism, which you just quoted, and then postmodernism picked up where that left off. When it failed, they didn't go back to traditionalism. They just went forward to the place where nonsense is not as big a deal. So he talks about examples of uh, liberalism prevailing throughout the 20th century. Uh, Riley gives a, uh, an account of his own uh, seminary where um, they had this, uh, well, okay, faculty members admitted to no bias pu publicly, politically, or theologically. When I asked the person in charge of chapels if we could invite some evangelicals to speak, he responded that all the faculty were evangelical. When I named well-known evangelicals, he answered, I believe you were talking about fundamentalism, and we will not invite anyone from that position that has berated us in the past. When Billy Graham was in town and we asked the president of the seminary whether Billy Graham might be invited on campus, the answer was no, because we do not wish to be identified with that form of Christianity. So that's the sort of classism that we're talking about here. Um, there are a lot of conservatives who want to believe that if we could just balance the scales in the seminaries and at least have some evangelical voices, then we could have an equal playing field. Um, within my own annual conference, we have a college that uh, hosts chapel services weekly from all leftist. Um, uh, in fact, we even had a worship of the queer God uh, worship service a few months ago. And some of the conservatives said, we just need to get some evangelicals in there and preach to them, and, and we can make the case. People like Christopher Rufo, who's taken over the board at City College in um, uh, Florida, he's making the case that, no, when you have this far leftism, it's, it's already too far gone. It, it cannot tolerate voices on the right. It's, it's an intolerant. They say they're intolerant of the intolerant, but that's a, or a rhetorical It's a di distinction without a difference. They are intolerant, and there is no um, compromise. <laughs> and so then it talks about um, in the higher echelons of the denomination, you had the Sunday school movement, and every single United Methodist Church could only use official materials that adopted this uh, uh, modernist perspective that scoffed at supernaturalism and is all about scientism. Then it talks about the pluralism statement. It's all good history. But in the end, he kind of gives his own cursory. He says, United Methodists identify as Republican more than Democrat by 
40% margin. I don't know if he's quoting the United Methodist Communications. Um, uh, UM News did a, a, a survey in 2019. Maybe he's quoting that. And then he suspects that only 95 uh, or only 5% of our general boards and agencies have employees that do not identify with the Democrat Party. He says this is just a personal impression. But I think that's probably right. I, I, I think one of the things we've been bemoaning for some time is that the people at the top of the denomination do not reflect the people at the bottom, and that's a problem. So uh, the last article I wanted to talk about today, and I'm not going to talk about it much in depth, is uh, the peculiar difficulty of the Methodist pastor. It's written by Daniel Ethan Harris. It was published on Firebrand, and um, I found this really helpful. It's something that I've um, been uh, concerned about for some time because what he focuses on is John Wesley was a very effective guy at facilitating this revival that took place, but his effectiveness at such work came when he was not the pastor of a local church. So he's, he's lifting up pastors of local churches want the fervor, want the form and the power of righteousness that was seen in Methodism, but we're wanting to do it as pastors, and we forget that John Wesley, whenever he did it, he was not a local pastor. He was, he was a superintendent, for all intents and purposes, of what um, he, he defines here as a sodality. So he quotes Ralph D. Winter here. He wrote in the 1970s, he claimed that Christianity is most effective when it incorporates and relies upon two kinds of structures, which he termed modalities and sodalities. Modalities are open to anyone who wants to be a part of them, while sodalities involve further commitments with further limitations and therefore further accountability. So uh, something that's, that's lacking from this article is a historical perspective going back to the beginnings of the church, where the church began in the first three centuries as a sodality. It was an exclusive group where they actually had deacons serve as bouncers at the door where uninitiated were not allowed to come and participate without a sponsor. And um, uh, when you read something like the patient ferment of the early church, you do get the sense that by making this a modality, the church's standards drop radically. Now, he talks about within the American context, whenever Methodism split off from Great Britain, it became um, a modality, it became a denomination. And so in Great Britain, it was only ever a, a, a revival movement alongside of the Church of England. So John Wesley... Um, Okay, so John Wesley, he was occupied with the leadership of sodalities, not a modality. The, 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 the United Society, societies of, of Methodism, they were a sodality. They were a, an optional group that you had to apply for and they could kick you out of. So this dynamic of his work was exemplified when he expelled 64 members from the society at Newcastle for reasons ranging from selling liquor to lightness, lightness and carelessness. This made sense for a sodality, Wesley could expel people who exhibited low commitment because to dismiss them from their Methodist sodality was not to excommunicate them from their Anglican modality. So Christ's table remained open to them. Now there is explicit scripture in the New Testament telling us to kick people out of the church after Jesus himself in the Gospel of Matthew details a process whereby uh, unrepentant sinners are removed from the church. Paul talks about it, Peter talks about it, Jude talks about it, so um, the, the key paragraph that I highlighted here is pastors who want a high degree of continuity with the doctrine, spirit, and discipline of early Methodism face the inevitable difficulty of pastoring a modality that they intend to be reflective of a sodality. This is difficult. 
Even Wesley, with all of his energy and organizational abilities, didn't even attempt it. And I think that's a worthy thing to point out. When we're trying to keep everyone in the fold, to try and, and maintain a high standard and then punish people or hold them accountable or, or jettison them, exercise church discipline, if you want to do that, there's no way to hold these things in tension. You're going to have to lose some people if you're going to maintain a high standard. And so a lot of pastors are caught between a rock and a hard place. So he ends the article with five tips for what you can do to kind of do both things. Now, the thing I want us as, you know, anyone who's splitting off in a conservative direction, traditionalist direction, I think there should be a conversation about higher church discipline, about making the church itself look more like a sodality. Because, you know, the problem when you have a modality with sodalities within it is you have this sense of like, oh, uh, you, you guys are the super arrogators. You know, if you don't know what super arrogation is, you should look it up. But the, the notion that some people go above and beyond, and then there's just like a baseline where everybody can be saved. Anytime you create that impression, well, it goes against the articles of religion, but also it, it just makes it very difficult to take seriously a high standard for discipleship. And so I think, I think the whole venture is fraught if you're not turning the modality of the modern American nominal church into an authentic sodality of uh, something resembling the, the well, the, the early Methodist church in America was a sodality. Uh, participation in the class meeting was mandatory. They would kick you out if you were not a faithful uh, participant in your class meeting. So something to consider. Not any, nobody, we've all been raised to think that being a Christian is being nice and not kicking anybody out and having everybody feel welcome and included. And I just don't see that in the Bible. And I, I think we're shooting ourselves in the feet if we don't even consider that position. All right, the final thing, J.J. Warren is a progressive, liberal, openly gay young man who's been, uh, he's been on the, I've seen him speak on the floor of General Conference. He is, um, well, anyway, he's getting ordained, you know, so uh, this would be one of those examples liberals point to and say, we're not all doing this, but I mean, the thing is, um, he's in uh, New England annual conference. They've affirmed, this is a, a Twitter post he made on his, his page, he said that uh, they've affirmed my call and are rec recommending me for provisional membership in June. So he's he's happy about this, and you see pictures of him participating in worship services as uh, openly gay, ostensibly practicing. I don't know anything about his personal life, but advocating for a change in the discipline and practicing a, a, a different sexual ethic than what's in our book of discipline. And so, you know, there's not much to say about this that hasn't already been said, but it's just important, you know, last week I lifted up, uh, General Board of Church and Society gave a, a grant to Reconciling Ministries Network that by discipline it's not allowed to do. I know right now it's a foregone conclusion that it's all going to swing left and it feels pointless to keep track of all the many um, uh, violations of the Book of Discipline that are still happening, but I just think out of a sense of integrity, we have to just take note, take stock. Um, a lot of these annual conferences that we are in connection with do not care. And that's upsetting. So um, I'm sure I went over 30 minutes, but I appreciate you hanging with me. I hope you found these to be worthy thoughts. Um, check the show notes for links to any of these articles. Write these authors and let them know what you think. Let's have a robust conversation and... Um, Let's just keep the temperature turned down in the denomination. Um, I would like it if we could be adults and uh, have a grown-up conversation 
and not be coercive and let people go if they want to go. So let's keep praying for the UMC. Take care.